count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, garbage, so that I may gain Christ. A Christian is not someone who merely agrees with gospel facts. The terrifying reality is that there are many, thousands and thousands of people who fill churches every Sunday who agree with every gospel truth and claim to believe it, even think they believe it, and one day they will die and go to hell. That's the horrifying reality. A Christian is not someone who just agrees with the truth, like you might agree with a political statement. A Christian is one who by sovereign grace has seen the glory of Jesus and the gospel and now loves Christ. Loves Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. A believer is one who loves Jesus. And love for Jesus produces obedience to Jesus. It produces a passion for Jesus. Can you say that this morning? And not can you say that you believe Jesus is God. That's great. You have to believe that. That's for sure. I'm not asking if you can say that you believe that Jesus died on the cross. I'm not asking can you say you believe you're a sinner. All of, you can believe all of those things and go to hell. The question is, have you come to see Christ so that you can say all is garbage compared to knowing Him? The surpassing value of knowing Christ. I hope you can say that this morning. And if not... Just to let you know King James Version is dung. Dung. Okay, I like that. <clears throat> Patty has informed me that the King James Version in Philippians 3 verse 8 says, all things are dung compared to knowing Christ. That's a pretty strong word. It's all excrement compared to Christ. I would Hopefully you can concur with that in your own heart. If not, if you can't concur with that today, I hope that the Lord would stir your heart to see Christ that you might come to Him. Let's pray to that end and prepare to dig into His Word. Father, we continue to be amazed as we consider the glory of Scripture. Here we have the very first verse of Philippians 3. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Now we could say, Oh, Paul, what do you know about our circumstances? We're struggling and suffering and going through such difficulty. And then we're reminded that Paul wrote this as one of the prison epistles. That Paul himself was incarcerated when he wrote this letter. And here he is, in jail, writing the epistle of joy. What an amazing paradox to the world. They look and they think, how can that be? How how can your life not turn out the way you want and yet you rejoice? And the answer is because we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in who you are, what you've done, what you've given to us in Christ. Because no matter how much we may suffer, no matter how painful life may be, no matter how difficult our circumstances may turn out to be, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Our relationship with you and your Son never changes because we are eternally secure in the One who holds us in His hand. And because of that, we can rejoice. We're reminded then that if the Christian life is not The Christian gospel is not a promise that you're going to have your best life now. It's not a promise that you're going to have everything turn out the way that you want. Our Lord promised us a cross. Come, follow me, and die, He says. Forsake all that you have, or you can't be my disciple, He says. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. These are the exhortations of the gospel. We're reminded that to become a Christian is to lose all things, that we might find all things in Him. That the gospel promises us life and communion with Christ and eternal glory, not riches and wealth and fame. But our joy comes not in those temporal, passing, material things. Our joy comes in Christ. We look at the things not that are seen, but the things that are unseen, that are eternal. We endure life with an eternal perspective. Our hope is set on Christ. So help us to do that. I pray for those who are here this morning that are believers and suffering and struggling, that you would give them encouragement as they consider the greatness of Your glory and the greatness of their salvation. I pray that even this morning as the Word is ministered, Your people would be encouraged. I pray for those who are here this morning that do not know Christ. They may have temporal joy for certain. They may have temporal happiness. They may have a temporal satisfaction. But it will soon run out when they die and stand in judgment before the King of heaven and earth. And 
before His magnificent holiness and they fall headlong into the pits of Your wrath forever in hell. And I pray that today that they would be stirred to come to Christ that they might have life. Lord, may You use Your Word to save the lost, to sanctify Your people, and to bring glory to Your name. We pray. Amen. All right, Titus chapter 1. I want you to turn to Titus chapter 1. As we continue to work our way through this section of Paul's letter to Titus. And as I told you last time, even though I'm not going to be able to finish the book of Titus before I leave, yet this next section is so practical, so timely, so appropriate for our church in this season of our life that I figured we would just keep moving right along. The passage that I'm referring to, of course, is verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We began looking at this text last time, and I told you that this passage really begins the body of the letter, the heart of it. We're past the introduction, past the preface, past the salutation, and now we've come into the heart and the body of the letter. And Paul starts here at the very outset by reminding Titus of why he left him in Crete and of what his mission there was. Let me read the passage to you once again. Titus 1, starting in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, and not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Clearly this passage deals with the theme of pastoral ministry, the need for godly men to be raised up and appointed as elders and leaders in Christ's church. You see, God has established a certain order, a certain structure within His church. I told you last time, just as... You're the one that determines how your house is organized and how your furniture is organized. So God is the one who determines how His church, His house is to be organized. How His church functions. That's not your prerogative. That's not my right. That's God's prerogative. God determines how His church functions. There is then a divinely established organization, leadership, and government. We don't have to figure this out on our own. We don't get to choose this on our own. God has set out a manual for us. There is a divinely established government. And that government is comprised of two offices. There are two offices that remain for the church today. Elder and deacon. Elder and deacon. The elders lead the church. The deacons serve the church. Got that? The elders are the leaders. The deacons are the servants. According to Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the deacons do whatever needs to be done to free up the elders to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The deacons do whatever needs to be done to free up the elders. Another way to think of it is this one. The elders minister to the spiritual needs of the church, primarily. The deacons minister to the physical needs of the church, primarily. The deacons free up the elders. The elders, then, are the leaders of the church. And Paul understood the importance of having godly men lead the flock of God. He knew that godly leadership was absolutely critical for the health of the church. That if the church is ever to be what God intends it to be, there must be godly men in leadership being an example to the flock. And so he begins the body of this letter emphasizing that very thing to Titus. Titus had his work cut out for him on the island of Crete. There were rebellious men, empty talkers, false teachers. And he had to organize the church in a way that would be benefit the church. And so that's where Paul begins. The organization of the local church. 
And really, this passage is comprised of two parts. Two parts. In verse 5, we see the implicit command to appoint elders. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see the explicit, specific qualifications for appointing elders. The command and the qualifications. First, the command. And we looked at this last time. So let me just briefly recap what we discussed, and I'll try to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. As you know, Paul and Titus had ministered on the island of Crete. They had apparently launched a missionary enterprise there on that island in the Mediterranean Sea. They had preached the gospel. Sinners were saved. Converts were made. Disciples were made. They were gathered together in local churches. Paul had to leave for some unknown reason prematurely. So he left Titus there as his associate, as his apostolic delegate, to finish the work. To set in order what remains, as verse 5 says. The Greek word epidiorthao. Epidiorthao. We get our word orthopedics or orthodontist from this word. An orthopedic sets your bones straight. An orthodontist sets your teeth straight. It means to straighten out, to set in order. Titus was to set things in order. He was to straighten things out. He was to finish the work. He was to complete what was left undone on the island of Crete. Now, I'm sure there were several things left for Titus to do, several things undone. For instance, we know from verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1 that he needed to refute the false teachers. There were heretics there propagating damning lies, and Paul and Titus needed to deal with that. I'm sure that he needed to instruct the various members of the church with regard to godly conduct and sound doctrine. That is emphasized all throughout the letter. But the most important work that remained for Titus was to appoint elders in every city. To appoint elders in every city. I told you last time that that word elder and the word used in verse 7, overseer, those two words are synonymous. Those two words, along with the word pastor or shepherd, used in Ephesians 4.11, all three of those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same group of men. The same office of ministry and leadership in the church. Elders are pastors, they are overseers. Same office, same men. We considered a couple of passages last week that affirmed that. I don't need to read those to you again, but just for your personal reference, if you would like to write those down, those passages included Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, where Paul, or sorry, Luke uses all three of those words to refer to the same group of men. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Peter uses a form of all three of those words, again, referring to the same men. So that's the the way it is in the New Testament. A pastor, an elder, an overseer refers to the same office. There's no hierarchy. It's the same office. We also noted last week that the word elder is used here, as is often the case, in the plural. In the plural. Titus was to appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. They had planted churches, if not in every city on the island, then at least in most of the cities, many of the cities. And every city that had a local church was to be led by a plurality of men, a plurality of (coughs) pastors and elders. A plurality of men who possessed the same office and the same authority. That's the biblical position. Plurality and parity. Plurality means more than one. Parity means equality of office and authority. And I gave you a few references for that last week as well. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Luke says that Paul called to himself the elders of the church. Elders, plural, church, singular. James chapter 5, verse 14 says, Are you sick? Then call for the elders of the church. Elders, plural, church, singular. 
That's God's design for the church. That is God's prescribed method for church leadership and church government. A plurality of pastors who lead the flock. I told you last time, there is no senior pastor, there's no youth pastor, no associate pastor, no executive pastor. They're just coming up with new names for them these days. You don't read about those in the New Testament. You ever read about that? I haven't either. I think God knows how to order His church. I don't think He got it wrong. I don't think we need to correct Him. There's no hierarchy. There are just pastors. And they all possess the same office and the same authority. The goal then as a church is to press on to maturity so that we can raise up, train, identify, and appoint men as elders and have a plurality of them leading the church. That we would raise up men from within. That's the biblical model. And we look forward to that day when Christ as King will have that. A plurality of godly men who will lead the flock. That's our prayer, that's our hope, and we trust that our Lord will one day get our church there. So that's the goal. Paul knew that. Paul knew that it was imperative that each local church have a plurality of godly men to lead the way. To shepherd them to maturity. And so he addresses that in this passage. And this passage, written 2,000 years ago, is so important for you and me today because ideally, every local church is to be led by a plurality of men And because it is your responsibility as a church member to look for and vote in the right men as pastors. That is your responsibility as a church member. To look for and vote in the right men as pastors. That brings us then to the question I posed last week. What are the standards for eldership? What are the qualifications for pastoral ministry? Or to put it, Quite simply, what are we to look for in a pastor? Well, that brings us to the second part of the passage, verses 6 through 9. In these verses, Paul is going to answer those questions by listing for us the qualifications any man must meet if he is to be a pastor. And these qualifications cover three areas or three categories. If you want to know if a man is qualified for pastoral ministry, you must look at his home, his conduct, and his doctrine. His home, his conduct, and his doctrine. For this morning, we'll look at his home. If you want to know if a man is qualified for pastoral ministry, the first place to look is his home, his family. Look at verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And how did he direct him? Apparently Paul had given Titus previous instructions on how to appoint elders, who to look for. How did he direct him? Verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I told you last week that before Paul gets to the specific qualifications, he starts with the general requirement. Namely, if any man is above reproach. That's where he begins. That's the general statement. The rest of the passage defines that. The rest of the passage tells us what a man beyond reproach looks like. As John Calvin says of this passage, this passage presents to us a lively portrait of a lawful bishop. A lively portrait of a lawful bishop. And it begins right here, he must be above reproach. The man qualified for leadership in the church of God is a man above reproach. Literally, a man who is unreprovable, unaccusable, irreproachable, blameless, A man whose character is free of any public, scandalous, habitual, character-tainting sin. He's not a perfect man, but he's a man of godly integrity. Consistent character. An example to the flock. A man whose life would bring no reproach upon Christ, the church, and the gospel. 
a man of integrity. That's where it begins. That's the general requirement. But now he gets to the specifics. And that's where we pick up for this morning. The first area he addresses is the home. And that deals primarily with two relationships. Two relationships. His relationship to his wife and his relationship to his children. His wife and his children. Verse 6 again. Namely, if any man is above reproach, what does that look like? The husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The blameless man is first of all, the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. By the way, just at the very outset, I told you last time, this indicates that he must be a man, doesn't it? You can't be a woman and be a one-woman man, right? I don't think that works that way. We don't play that game here. You've got to be a man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent. That's God's design. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Women are to remain silent in the churches. This is not because women wouldn't necessarily be good pastors. It's not because, I mean, There are women who would be better pastors than men. In fact, I think my wife would make a better pastor than Joel Osteen. That doesn't, that doesn't qualify her for pastoral ministry, right? That sets the bar too low. So it's not that they're terrible people or not even gifted people. It's just that God's design is that men lead in the church and in the home. So he's got to be a man. That's certainly true. He's a one-woman man. Just three Greek words here. The word one, a word that means either man or husband, and then a word that means wife or woman. He's a one-wife husband. A husband with one wife. A husband with one wife. One-woman man. What does that mean? What is Paul saying here? Does he mean that a pastor must be married? Does this disqualify single men? Well, of course not. Loyalty. Loyalty. Very good. I've got that in my notes somewhere. Loyalty. So it certainly doesn't mean he can't be married, or that he uh, has to be married, but it certainly implies he can be married, right? That's obvious. The foolish notion of the Roman Catholic Church that bishops have to be lifelong celibates is unbiblical nonsense. It's extra-biblical tradition. Clearly, a bishop, an overseer, an elder, a pastor can be married. But does this mean, does this indicate that he has to be married? The answer to that would be no. Paul himself, who penned these qualifications, was unmarried. And although Paul was an apostle, yet he did at times serve as a pastor. In Acts chapter 13, Luke mentions the leaders of the Antioch church, the pastors there, and Paul is one of those pastors. And Paul was unmarried. So if marriage is an absolute must for a pastor, then Paul himself would have been disqualified. I don't think we want to go there, do we? By the way, there is no evidence that Timothy was married, and yet Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor that church for a time. There's no evidence that Titus himself was married, And yet here we find him at the island of Crete providing leadership for the churches there. And if marriage then is an absolute must for eldership, then Paul and Titus and Timothy were all disqualified. We're not going to go there. That's not what Paul means. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean he has to be married. It doesn't mean... It certainly means he can be married. Peter was married, by the way. 1 Peter 5.1, he calls himself an elder. And yet he had a wife. So he can't be married. So what does he mean then by one woman man? Two very simple things. Two simple things. Sexual purity and marital faithfulness. Sexual purity and marital faithfulness. Any man qualified for pastoral ministry is sexually pure and maritally faithful. If he's married, he's characterized by, as you said, Brandon, loyalty. Faithfulness to his wife. He's not a person who has one wife but has two or three other lovers. He's not an adulterer. Adultery would disqualify a man, obviously, from the ministry. But even if a pastor is not married, he's still to be sexually pure. 
He can't be a fornicator. He can't be given over to excessive lust and pornography and things of that nature. That would disqualify him from the pastorate. He must be a man of sexual purity and marital faithfulness. Now Paul begins here because this is one of the areas in which a pastor is most likely to fail. This is a place in which a pastor is most likely to fail. It brings reproach upon the gospel. How many times have we heard of a man in the ministry, in the pastorate, and he's had a scandalous fall where he ends up divorcing his wife and marrying the church secretary? I've heard a story about that. And he still was a pastor. How many times have we seen these public men who are adored by many, even sound theologically, only to have their their garbage behind the scenes come out as an evidence of their guilt and bring reproach upon the church? And we wonder why. The common character today of the culture is that Christianity is a bunch of hypocrites playing church. That's the damage that takes place when you have an unqualified man. It, if the gospel can't change your leader's life, what is it going to do for me? What reproach that brings on the gospel? Scripture is clear that sexual sin is a heinous sin. It is a character-tainting, family-destroying, ministry-disqualifying sin. And Scripture is constantly warning against this sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18, Paul issues this sober warning and exhortation. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. It's the Greek word porneia, pornos. We get the word pornography from this word. Run, it's any act of illicit sex. Run away from illicit sexual activity, he says. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Sexual immorality is such a heinous sin because it's a sin against your own body, a body that has been purchased by Christ, purchased for Christ, a body that has become the temple of the Holy Spirit in which He dwells. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do you want to join the Holy Spirit in sexual sin? Paul later says, do you want to join Christ to a prostitute? That's what happens when you engage in sexual immorality. So we must run away from sexual sin. Paul stresses that same theme in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, turn there with me just for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4, a couple of pages to the left. Before Titus you have... 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, then 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul is instructing the Thessalonians with regard to their sanctification. And he emphasizes that that includes an abstaining from sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification... You want to know what God's will is for your life? You ever heard people say that? I want to know God's will for my life? Here it is. Your sanctification. Your holiness. What is that? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality hinders holiness. It isn't holiness. Verse 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. When you engage in sexual sin, you live like pagans who don't know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God's will is your sanctification, and that involves abstaining from sexual sin. That's a standard for all believers, but a standard that absolutely must be met by any man who is to serve as a pastor. Back to Titus 1 now. Titus 1. 
This is so serious, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us in verses 9 and 10 because Paul says, no sexually moral person, no fornicator, no adulterer, no homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. That's harsh language, isn't it? In other words, if your life is marked by habitual sexual sin, you are not a Christian. You are not headed for heaven. You are headed for hell. It doesn't matter what you profess with your mouth. It doesn't matter how regularly you are in church attendance. If you are engaging in consistent sexual sin, you are not headed for the kingdom of God. There is forgiveness, right? There's grace. There's salvation. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Such were some of you. You used to be fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and whatever. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's the good news. There's forgiveness. If you repent, that is, if you confess and turn away from your sin and turn to Christ, God will forgive you. You will be cleansed. Made holy. Jesus died for that forgiveness. He purchased it. That's the good news. But if your life is marked by habitual sexual sin, you give evidence that you do not belong to Christ, you do not genuinely believe, and you are not truly repentant. And if a man's life is tainted by sexual sin in any way, he is disqualified from the pastoral ministry. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 puts it this way. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Very sober words. Fornicators, by the way, it's one who's engaging in activity outside of marriage. Shacking up with a girlfriend, living in sin. Fornicators, God will judge. You won't hear that in many evangelical pulpits today because they don't want to talk about it, but it's the truth. If I love you, I tell you the truth. The truth is, is if you're engaging in sexual sin, God will judge you. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus is instructing the Pharisees on the topic of marriage and divorce. And He says this, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He becomes an adulterer. Because God hates divorce. Because divorce violates God's plan for marriage. A very design for marriage that is spelled out in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, then reiterated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. Jesus sums it up this way. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You got that? It's not the three that become one. We're not talking about polygamy and open relationships. That's the common thing today. And notice it's the man is joined to his wife. Not the man and the man, not the woman and the woman. Anything other than this, other than one man, one woman, joined together for life is contrary to God's design for marriage. That obviously would include fornication, adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, pornography, lust, etc., etc., etc. So sexual purity and marital faithfulness is demanded of all Christians, but must be a standard met by those who serve as pastors. A one-woman man. This, by the way, would disqualify from the ministry any man who has had an unbiblical divorce, any man whose life is characterized by immorality or marital unfaithfulness in any way. But that leads to a serious question then. Is it ever permissible for a man who's been divorced in the past to serve as an elder in the present? Is it ever permissible? Many commentators say no. I would actually say it could be. It could be. Let me explain. If a man has had a biblical divorce and remarriage, and by that I mean a biblically justified divorce and remarriage, then I think he could possibly in the future be qualified for ministry. 
It would have to be long enough afterwards for him to no longer bear the stigma of that, thus bringing reproach on the church. It would have to be long enough afterwards for, to give him time to express a longevity of faithfulness to his current wife and purity. But I think he could eventually be qualified. Because this is not necessarily disqualifying someone who's had more than one marriage. The Bible permits remarriage in certain cases. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 19.9, didn't He? We just read that. He said, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. There's an exception. If a wife is unfaithful to the husband, or vice versa, the spouse then has the right to divorce and remarriage biblically. Jesus makes that exception. If a man's wife dies, he's permitted to be remarried. Scripture is very clear on that. Neither of those circumstances would necessarily disqualify a man from future pastoral ministry. You see, the stress here is on consistent, present conduct. Any of these qualifications, if you just go down to verse, verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. What if the man was addicted to wine ten years ago? But over the last seven years, he's displayed faithfulness and soberness. Is that man disqualified? No. We're talking about the present conduct. And so it is here with regard to the sexual arena. This is about present conduct. John Gill says, speaking of this passage, that this means that he should have but one wife at a time. That's what Paul's talking about here. In the present, he's a one-woman man. A man of purity and loyalty and devotion to his wife. Let me give you an example, just to kind of help illustrate what I mean. If a man is married at 20, his wife leaves him for another man at 21, he's converted at 22, and then now he's married again at 25, now he's 30, and he's displayed years of faithfulness to his current wife, I don't think that man's necessarily disqualified from the ministry. I think he's had biblical grounds for remarriage and therefore he could be qualified for the ministry. But any man who's had a biblical, unbiblical divorce in the past, any man who's left a wife or another woman or any other reason, that man, I believe, is permanently disqualified from the ministry because he will, to some degree, permanently bear that stigma. There's forgiveness in Christ. There's opportunities to serve other ways in the local church, but that man would be permanently barred from serving as a leader in Christ's church. So the first qualification deals with a man's relationship to his wife. He must be a one-woman man. But it also deals with his relationship to his children. Verse 6 again. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The godly man qualified for pastoral ministry is not only a one-woman man, He's a man having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, what does that mean? What does Paul mean by having children who believe? On the surface, it looks obvious enough, but the Greek text provides us with a very big interpretive challenge here that has led to much debate. In fact, you may notice that your translation says something different here. The ESV renders it this way. His children are believers. That's consistent with what the Nazareth says, indicating that the children have to be believers, saved, Christians. But the King James Version and the New King James Version translate it differently, don't they? The New King James Version renders it like this. Having faithful children. Faithful children. So the NAS and the ESV says they've got to be believers. The New King James says they have to be faithful. That's a big difference. One case, one of they have to be Christians, and in another case, they simply have to be faithful. So why the difference then? Why the difference? Well, it has to do with the way the Greek word translated believe here is rendered. It's the Greek word pistos, pistos, and it comes from a word that means to be persuaded. And it could carry at least two different meanings here, as is obvious in the translations. It could mean believe as it's translated in the NASB. It could refer to a Christian, a believer. 
But it can also carry the idea of just faithfulness, trustworthiness, reliableness. And it is used in the New Testament that way. Let me give you some examples. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, we're all familiar with our Lord's words there. When He says, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. Same word there, pistos, faithful. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 of God, where Paul says, God is faithful. Same word. God is not a believer. God is not believing. God is faithful. That's the right way to translate the word there. It's used again in 1 Corinthians 4.2 of pastors where Paul says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Same word there. Pistos, reliable, trustworthy. So it doesn't necessarily mean believing. It could just refer to a person who is faithful in terms of general character. I may have an atheist friend who's faithful every day to be at work on time. He's reliable in that sense. That doesn't make him a Christian. It doesn't make him a believer. But in some sense, that word pistos could be applied to him as a faithful worker. So some commentators conclude from that that Paul is not saying that for someone to be qualified to be a pastor, his children have to be saved, but they simply have to be faithful, well-behaved, obedient children. So that's a possibility. But it is, however, possible for the word to be translated believer. It could be translated that way. It's used that way in the New Testament a couple of times. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul, speaking of Christians, says this, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Same word there, believer. It's the right translation. Abraham was not merely a faithful man, he was a believer, one saved by faith. Acts chapter 16 verse 1 uses it that way as well. There Paul described Timothy as the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Timothy's mom was a Christian who had raised him in the Word of God from childhood. So the word could refer to someone who's faithful in terms of general character, or it could refer specifically to a Christian. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? In this particular passage. Because what is Paul saying? How does Paul intend to use the word here? Is he saying that for a man to be qualified to be a pastor, his children have to be saved, or is he simply saying his children have to be well behaved? Well, there are good theologians that come down on both sides. John MacArthur says they've got to be saved. John Gill says, no, they don't, because that's not even in a man's power. A man can't guarantee the salvation of his children. So that could not be a requirement. So which one's right? I would agree with John Gill. I would think that what Paul means to convey here is that his children have to be well behaved. Let me show you why I believe that. The first reason I believe that is because of the context of the passage. The context of the passage. If you look at verse 6 again, the qualified man is the one who has children who believe or who are faithful. And then he tells us in the last statement of verse 6 what that means. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Paul's not necessarily saying they have to be saved, but that they have to be faithful, obedient. Those who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. They're children trustworthy to do what is right. There will be a... The word dissipation translates the Greek word asotia. Asotia. It's a word that means unsavable, wasted. It refers to excessive, unrestrained behavior, indulgence in wickedness, debauchery. It's often linked in Scripture with drunkenness. It's used in Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Same word there. Drunkenness is excessive debauched behavior. Wild behavior. Uncontrolled behavior. That's what the word means there. The other word, rebellion, translates a Greek word that means 
not subject to rule. Not subject to rule. It's disobedient, unruly behavior. Uncontrolled behavior. One who is anti-authority. It's one who doesn't respect the authority of another. It would be children who do not acknowledge, respect, and obey the authority of their parents. So Paul is saying that if a man can't keep his children under control and in good order, he's disqualified from pastoral ministry. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he means here by having children who believe. Well behaved. Let me give you one more reason to believe that. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. This is another of the pastoral epistles. Paul's writing to Timothy, serving as a pastor at Ephesus. And he gives Timothy a list of qualifications that are really parallel to the list that he gives to Titus. And for the sake of context, I'll start reading in verse 1. We'll go to verse 5. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, same word there, overseer, elder, pastor, same office. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. That's where the call to pastoral ministry begins. A desire. Theologians refer to it as the inner calling, the internal calling. It's an inner longing for the ministry that produces an outward pursuit of the ministry. However, there are some men who have that desire and it's not a good desire. So Paul lists some qualifications that must be met if we're to determine if that desire comes from God. Verse 2, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, same qualifications, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. They look almost exactly the same, don't they? And then you come to verse 4. This is key. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Here's Paul, the same man who wrote those qualifications to Titus, writing a similar list to Timothy, and there's nothing about believing children there. Nothing about children being Christian. I'd find it odd that if it's a requirement that a man have saved children to be a pastor, that Paul would fail to mention that to Timothy. That seems odd to me. So I think then that we should interpret Paul's words to Titus in light of Paul's words to Timothy. Letting Scripture interpret the Scripture. Even though the word could be translated either faithful or believing in Titus 1, in light of 1 Timothy 3, I think we know what it means. The issue is verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well. What does that mean? It means keeping his children under control with all dignity. It means his children are respectful, submissive, under control, well behaved. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's the qualification that Paul is setting for. So this would mean that if a man, a godly man, who's qualified for pastoral ministry, had a child who, while the child was in his home, was respectful and well-behaved, then went outside of his home, no longer under the authority of his father, grew up, moved out into the world, and then became an unbeliever, that doesn't mean the Christian father is disqualified for ministry. As long as when the child is under the authority of his parents, he's well-behaved, well-disciplined, and well-respectable. That is the qualification that Paul sets forth here. But, on the flip side, any man who has children in his home, under his authority, under his care, who are unruly and uncontrolled, that man is disqualified. And verse 5 tells us why this is the case. 1 Timothy 3.5 This is so important because if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's exactly right. If he can't take care of this little church in his home, how's he going to take care of this great church here? John MacArthur commenting on this says, A man who cannot spiritually and morally lead his own family is not qualified to lead an entire congregation. Right? Lesser to the greater. 
Daniel Aiken adds, the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. That's where you look. How is the man leading the church that is in his home? How is he leading the flock he has at home? That's how you determine if he can lead the flock in the church. John Stott says this, The married pastor is called to leadership in two families. His family and God's family. And the former, i.e. the home, is to be the training ground of the latter that is the church. A godly man qualified for pastoral ministry is a man that displays godly leadership in the home. His children are under control. His home is well in order. If a man can't lead his own family to salvation, sanctification, maturity, and good order, what makes you think he can do that in the church? That's just set, setting him up to fail, setting the church up to fail. By the way, this call to leadership in the home is not just for pastors, however. It's for all men, all fathers, and even in a secondary way for all mothers. What did Deuteronomy 6 tell us? These words are to be on your heart. You're to teach them diligently to your children. Talk about it when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk by the way. In other words, teach your children the Word of God all the time. Constantly be talking about the Word of God to your children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul exhorts all fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the call of God on all fathers and all parents. All Christians are called to lead their homes, but that is a qualification that must be met for any man to serve as a pastor. So if you want to know if a man is qualified for ministry, where do you look? You look in his home. Is he faithful to his wife? Are his children under control? Does he manage his household well? If not, then it doesn't matter how good he looks. It doesn't matter how slick he is. It doesn't matter how smart he is. It doesn't matter how theologically sound he is, how gifted he is, how good of a communicator he is. That man is disqualified for ministry. However, if a man does meet that standard of godly leadership in the home, that is the kind of man you want to look for as a pastor. That is where you begin. Well, there are two other areas of qualification, and we'll have to look at those next time. But for now, may we all pursue sexual purity, marital faithfulness, and a well-ordered home with obedient children for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You for the power of the truth that comes so effectually into our hearts and our minds, transforming the way we think and live. We're so grateful that Your Word, again, speaks with such clarity. That is the amazement to me, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, that the Word of God is clear. The people of God can set it open and under the illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit can grasp divine truth. And we've done that this morning. And our hope, Father, is that You would help me personally to continue to be a man who seeks to love and lead his family well. We pray that each of us as Christians would do that. And we pray for the next man that God has for Christ as King. That You would give us a man who is a godly, holy leader in his own home, leads his own family to godliness, and He would then do that in the church, leading Your people to greater levels of Christ-likeness and maturity. So Lord, please do that, we pray, for the glory of Your Son. Amen.